and welcome back, everyone, to the Research VR podcast, the podcast behind the science and design of virtual reality. I am your host, Azad Balabanian, and with me today are two special guests from Portland, Oregon. Uh, the first guest is a recurring guest, Jessica Outlaw, who is a culture and behavioral researcher at the Outlaw Center for Immersive Behavioral Science. Hello, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me, Oz. Yeah, thank you for being here. And our second guest today is Rebecca Hyman, who is a mental health therapist in a private practice in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Today, we're going to have a podcast that's all about culture and about community. So Jessica and Rebecca, I guess maybe you two can go one by one. Uh, Jessica, how did you find yourself kind of in this world of virtual reality and augmented reality? Sure. So I um, I did my graduate training in behavioral science. I studied a lot about decision making, a lot about how the people around us can impact our decisions or just the things in our environment can impact our decisions. And um, I finished graduate school in 2014. I took a job at Nike just doing some pretty standard UX research. And then in 2016 was the first time I got a VR demo. It was um, Valve's The Lab. That was the first VR demo I ever did. And I was so impacted by that experience, by how all of the environment and all of the social experiences were in so many ways constructed and were so influential on a person's behavior. And so I wanted to become a bridge between the social science that I had studied in graduate school to helping designers of VR and AR experiences like use like make the best possible experiences um, because I actually believe that there's so many like VR experiences that are so real that I don't really make a distinction between what happens in the physical space and what happens in the virtual space because it impacts you know our decision making and our behaviors um, in in every realm. So where my work first took me was in 2017. I did a large, I, I did an initial qualitative study with 13 women in um, social VR to understand what their first time experiences were. And um, I, there were a lot of findings about safety and self-expression. And in those initial findings, I ended up talking to Rebecca, who I knew socially at the time. And I talked to her about the presentation of gender in these social virtual spaces. And uh, Rebecca, um, she specializes in trauma and studying trauma and oppression. She's a former professor of English and women's studies. Like she and I have had multiple conversations about gender and power in the workplace. We actually ran a workshop together for professional women in Portland last uh, November on that topic. So essentially, Rebecca and I have been in conversation about uh, power and privilege and what it means in the physical world and in the virtual world. And so I asked her to join the conversation today because she and I are very interested in building nonviolent cultures, um, which, you know, in some ways is so visible in these social VR worlds where I'm documenting the, the prevalence of harassment um, and the safety issues. And Rebecca is working on a, on a much more like abstract and philosophical level of, you know, where does where does power come from? Where does privilege come from? How would any of those change? And so, um, Rebecca, I, maybe you want to add more about yourself, but just to like lay that context of of like how Rebecca and I have been in conversation and she's actually been influencing my work since 2017. Thanks. I think what I would add to that is 
Yeah, one thing when I started learning about VR from Jessica's work, and I was uh, I was fairly new to that uh, way of of constituting and creating uh, a a way of being and a reality, and to see that it's both ephemeral and tangible at the same time was really interesting to me because I'm fascinated by the idea of virtual reality as a space. Uh, that could potentially allow us to practice or represent new ways of creating culture and community. So that's, that's part of the reason I'm drawn to VR. And I think an, uh, a reason that Jessica and I work so well together, is she's, she's very interested in the sort of material and symbolic. And I like to look at the larger systemic structures that make certain ways of being that I see, uh, see as, constructed appear natural and inevitable. Hmm. And I guess also if you're a, you know, a practicing physician, uh, you also work on the, on the ground, right? Like whether it's to apply some of these theories to specific people and like, does that also affect your work at all? Like the research that you've been participating? Absolutely. And I'm actually a a therapist, not a physician. Excuse me. Yes. (laughs) I'm a brain physician. Let's put it that way. Uh, this is very real in my work, not only because the people uh, I work with lots of folks from marginalized communities in my practice. And so I like to help people uh, distinguish and differentiate between personal and individual causes of suffering and emotional pain and uh, the ways that pain can be created by larger structures and ideological formations. Um, that sounds really depressing, but actually I find it empowering for my clients to be able to talk about ways that we all participate together in creating certain norms. And if they're in, if they don't fit with those norms, if their identity is different, if their way of being is different, they might uh, shame themselves or feel personally responsible for things that are happening in their lives that actually might be more of a dynamic interplay between what they're doing uh, in their own personal lives and what's happening in the dominant culture. So this is this is a very real part of the work that I do in therapy, and I'm also um, getting ready to train clinicians in in Portland uh, through Lewis and Clark in the spring about how to introduce these ideas more widely and broadly in clinical practice. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm interested in in tying this, I guess, now into VR and, and social VR. Yeah, kind of seeing what the intersections. Uh, come up. Um, so Jessica, since you've been on this podcast before, we can, we can slightly, we can do a little recap of what we talked about last time. Um, when you had just done that qualitative study about women's experiences and social VR experiences. And I, the, I titled the episode, I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy about it and looking back on it now, but I called it why women don't like social VR. And it was like, looking back on it now, it was like so clickbaity and I'm, I'm, not proud of it. <laughs> I'm, I also realized kind of like yeah, how headlines get made by, and in terms of like the ones that we encounter uh, popping up and you're like, oh, what is this about? And it's like just so like emotionally charged. Um, but I mean, to be honest, it was, you know, for the most part, it was about about the experiences and the, the safety issues or and like the harassment issues that come up. And, and, and these are things that I had also seen firsthand. So it wasn't that it was so out of the blue. Um, yeah, let's let's quick briefly kind of talk about um, talk, talk about that. 
Yeah. So I can, I can recap my work from 2017 and the work that came after it. So in 2017, there was the qualitative study. It was a small, like I did individual interviews with people who, with women who were new to VR. I picked women who were young and tech savvy. I think the median age was 30. Um, I brought in people who worked in technology, like you know, there was at least one software developer, um, people who used social media regularly and were used to talking to strangers and, um, and what they, what they experienced when I gave them demos of, uh, of some of these social VR platforms was, um, there were, there were some pretty strong themes. There was, uh, there was discomfort with using the microphone. Like they didn't want to reveal themselves as women. They didn't want to ex pick, pick gendered avatars. They wanted to be uh, seen as robots. So there was, there was, this, uh, it was hard for them to like want to be seen as themselves. Um, there was this perception that like, well, why is it more real? Like they had this idea of what virtual reality would be. Um, there was also like some harassment that occurred. So there was one person who, um, who just talked about how she would walk around the perimeter of a group. So that way she wouldn't attract attention. There was another woman who was harassed in, in one of these spaces. And she, um, she said it felt just like being like harassed on the street. And so to her, there was no distinction between being harassed in the physical environment and being harassed online. Uh, the third aspect was around some of the technical like UX of like people who are new to VR and not using the control, not really familiar with controllers or who don't have a lot of gaming experience. There was some feedback around that, um, some difficulty, like understanding how to navigate the menus. So that was my 2017 work. And then in 2018, I did a follow-up quantitative study with 600 regular users of VR and this was funded by Pluto VR in Seattle because Pluto was really interested in understanding what are people's social preferences? Because clearly like nobody's looking to really go in and get harassed, but what are people looking to do online? So we found that people do really love being social. Um, and one of the ways that they find that they really enjoy being social is giving demos of VR to other people. And so that was really one of the most surprising findings that, that that's how people like to share VR is through demos. Um, I also asked the 600 people, um, for around like including, Oh, did you want to ask a question? Uh, yeah, if, if, if I may, I mean, was the question, that initial question you were asking, like, is VR social? And, and your one of the answers you got was, Oh, it, it is. And it's because of the real life social experience of, of demoing it to each other. Or like, I guess, am, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So it's social in that people want to spend time with their friends. With their friends doing that. Okay. Yeah. And so it was surprising that one of the ways that they were doing that was they were bringing their friend over to their house or they were carrying their headset to somebody to another lo location. Hmm. Um, and they considered that being social. Uh, and so the, the primary finding was that people did not really enjoy like these broad open spaces where there were safety issues. They wanted a chance to hang out with like their closest friends. And so those were the types of social interactions that were really popular. Right. Makes sense. Among the survey responses, because I was asking about like, what, like, have you ever been harassed? Um, and about a third of men reported, you know, receiving, um, being on the receiving end of like racist or homophobic comments and 20% of men uh, reported like receiving violent comments or threats. Uh, and then about 49% of women reported having at least one instance of sexual harassment. 
And so in this, like what I was trying to highlight in talking about how men are having these um, experiences online as well as women is that like, there's, there's like, these are not particularly welcoming places. Um, if you don't want to deal with that type of behavior. Uh, another thing that I was really, um, that like came up in the survey was people had a very different perspective than I did. They just thought like, Oh, it's just pixels on a screen. It's not actually harassment. And I think that that was a, um, there were just a handful of people who filled out the survey and, um, and they were just like, no, like whatever. Like I may see, like I may, I may like be receiving violent comments or I may be giving violent comments, but it's not real. It's just kids being kids. And so I think that that's another aspect that, um, that just made me like more curious to dive into this work because I think there's like, what does it mean about, um, about like our culture of VR? If we are, if we have a segment of, of folks who just think that, um, none of the behavior matters and it's just pixels on a screen and none of it is real. Uh, because I actually see, perceive all of it as real. That's, that's the argument that you're making, right? Is that because VR is embodiment, and because you're actually having a face to face interaction with people, the, you know, the griefing or the harassment that you may do, depending on, right, how you're categorized these, the, the actions to the words, they, they're much more real, uh, to the other person than they would be. And so right. I, I guess um, the question I was asking before was like, are these people that have experienced VR or, and, and they've like, you know, been in these situations and, and, and they're kind of making, uh, kind of like a, a top down call of like, ah, this isn't that real because like, or it, it is mm -hmm. real. I'm, I'm guess there's real repercussions because it does really feel uncomfortable. And like having been, you know, if, if someone's really close to you with their hands or faces, like that's not a good yeah. thing to experience with either gender. But, um, I, yeah, I wonder what they were thinking, whether it was that yes, IRL not real, but, but actually does matter in their life. You know, like it can cause, let's say real trauma or like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really curious about why they would say what they were saying or like what they were thinking. Well, I think, I think this is actually a really good, a really good pivot into this, into this, like this bigger question that, um, Rebecca and I have been thinking about because like this whole idea of like what actually matters in the construction of culture because like the, everybody who filled out my survey, I guess the most direct way to answer your question, Oz, is to say that um, everybody who filled out my survey had to use VR at least twice a month and they had to have a level of savvy. And so I think the thing is, is that um, is that I'm going like I've I've heard that in my survey. I also heard it from people on Twitter just um, just like having this attitude of like, oh, just let it go and it doesn't matter and it's not real. And I think the thing is, is that like, I think I'm really fascinated by this question of what is real and what is not real and what matters in changing people's behavior and in changing people's beliefs. So I think this could actually be a good, a good segue to talk about the VR manufacturer, the headset manufacturer commercial. Sure. Um, go for it. Okay. So let's, let's pivot into that because I think that this, um, the reason I really like talking about this, uh, headset manufacturer commercial, um, it's a, it's a two minute commercial about, um, this future 
this imagined future of what VR can do. And mm-hmm. it's this whole, like, it's this whole promise of like, what if, you know, you could use your hands? What if you could go anywhere that you wanted? What if you could have all of your desires met at any point in time? Mm. And um, just to like kind of set the stage if people haven't seen this commercial before, we can link to it in the show notes for folks. But sure. essentially, it's like one person at a fancy party, this, I would say a fancy Hollywood party, who who navigates through it. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, here are all these elements of culture that are being represented in this two minute story. And this is not the VR culture that I want to build. And so whereas some people might see this commercial and might be like, oh, that's like a funny, glitzy commercial. Like I see that and I am worried about the future that we're building. And so I showed it to Rebecca and she and I had a long conversation about um, about what are these symbols there and what could people like like what are the different ways that we could, that we would want to change the story if we were in charge of making that commercial? Hmm. I Yeah. And can I jump in for a second? Please. I think um, secondary to this question of what is real and what is not real is uh, also this question of what is, what is the, the role of the imagination in virtual reality and what is the role of the imagination in real life or in culture more generally? Um, and, and another reason I think Jessica and I are, were really interested in this particular commercial is that it asks, it presupposes that the way that we use imagination, it's represented as if it's distinct or different or hyper real. And yet uh, what is being imagined in this utopian, quote, future space is actually highly normative for the present moment and yet being represented as what we will imagine in the future, what what beautiful things VR can create in the future are are new and different. But then when Jessica and I looked at it, we were like, we're not seeing anything new and different. We're seeing a a, a real retrenchment or calcification of of dynamics that are very common and ordinary in the present moment. Mm. You're seeing you're seeing VR kind of represent Instead of it being anything new in a sense, in terms of how society or cultures and communities can be formed, you're seeing it represent what we see outside. Well, let's let's give some examples of 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 how this is coming this is coming through. So essentially, like um, it's it's, this commercial, it shows basically one man um, dominating this entire party. Um, He's not in relationship to anything. He's he's it's like a very like wolf of wall street where he can snap his fingers and everyone does exactly what he wants him to do. <laughs> I guess this is so just to kind of give context. Cause I, I some listeners might be like, what is, what is being talked about? I, and, and, and the reason I notice is because of Twitter. So if you're interested in seeing what happens on the in, inner, in the inner workings of the VR industry, it all, typically it always happens on Twitter, but I, okay, tell me if this timeline is correct. Um, yeah, this is like 2016. Intel puts out a video at their conference, at their developer conference, that it's like this is a new headset that's coming out called Merged Reality. I guess that's like the term they also invented, um, and it's going to be dope. It's like has it's all in one. It's mobile. It's basically what the Oculus Quest was supposed to be back back in 2016, but it didn't really work so well. Anyway, so 
<laughs> the reason I'm, I, I, I'm, we're talking about this is because I think one of the engineers that worked on it wrote a little uh, write up about what the experience was like to launch or to announce that headset and for this commercial to be have made like literally in a like the last two weeks before everything and it's and it, i think he described it as like this james bond kind of fantasy of of like you are james bond because you are in vr and you like drop down into a party in la and you got like all these girls around you and there's a pool and you're like what's up and then you're like freeze everyone and then i, I don't remember how it ends but it was just i i guess that's like am i describing this correctly in terms of like this fantasy okay yeah oh yeah yeah you get airlifted out by a airlifted. helicopter right. at the end and so and i think actually the the intel ceo was also supposed to like drop down onto the stage with from um with from like a, a harness that so like oh. supposed to represent that like you know they went up and then came down and i, I maybe i'm misquoting it but you're basically your your idea about this is that like this is rather than vr being like a new world and a new kind of for a new user like this is the type of pe person in there the 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 person that would have these fantasies like this is the only person that you're trying to market this to instead of thinking more broadly am i am i like summarizing yeah okay good yeah i, I think that's 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 like the first stage and mm -hmm. i think the second stage is is that the there you there's elements of that there's symbols in that that not just you're not marketing to other groups you're actively alienating other groups mm -hmm. so when he's airlifted out by a helicopter at the end of the pool party <laughs> um what do helicopters Helicopters mean to members of marginalized communities or to um, war refugees. Hmm. Um, I mean, Rebecca, is there anything else that you would want to add about like the symbolism of helicopters to people who aren't James Bond? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I uh, when I watched the the uh, commercial and was first talking to Jessica about it, I I said anytime I see and or hear a helicopter, I think of the beginning of Apocalypse Now and uh, hmm. Vietnam vets. And it's probably also because I'm a trauma therapist that works with war war veterans, but helicopters circle, circling overhead for me and for the people I work with are generally about uh, either being in communities of color where the helicopter overhead is the police and that immediately invokes uh the, mili the military industrial complex, the prison, prison to pipeline, the police brutality. So, hmm. so for me, when I, when I hear a helicopter, when I see helicopter blades, I don't think James, James Bond, I think about surveillance and, <laughs> uh, violence, yeah, <laughs> so, fair enough, fair especially, enough. and there's this giant rope that sort of swings towards the viewer in the commercial. And again, yes, if you're, if you're enculturated to see yourself as potentially James Bond, when that line comes towards you, it's it's non-threatening, right? It's about it's actually in the commercial. It's actually kind of a joke because you, as the viewer, have just pushed the waiter into the pool, so you're you're actually escaping, humiliating this waiter by being able to airlift yourself out, which is, you know, for folks in marginalized communities and veterans, they don't normally get to airlift themselves out of uh, situations of violence. So that wouldn't be their first thought when they heard the helicopter. <laughs> wow. Right. 
Or political protesters. We could also add political protesters yes. to the yes. list of people who might have different associations right. or, or yes. refugees as well. Like, I think there's a longer list, like people who have like been in disasters. So I think that there's one way to say this, which is like, who are you marketing to? And then there's another thing, which is like, who are you actively alienating by telling the story about VR to? I feel I feel like I have to play. I have to look at it from the other side because because I understand where you're coming from in terms of like if is this the person that you're trying to attract in terms of like this product that you're creating and 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 I understand that and and I think there's terrible marketing campaigns that don't think about like who who and how like what symbolism gets used and and all that. But isn't isn't the idea more about like it doesn't matter who you are, but in VR you can be anyone. So therefore, like. Let's. I, I guess they what they picked is a pretty like a, a trope of what a guy wants, right? Like that, and and I'm happy to like. I, I totally see that if if you know if you want to look at this as like it's not really ap- appealing to women. Um, I can understand that because it's like put in a male James Bond body, and like I guess I don't know if women like you know want to fantasize about themselves being James Bond, um, or maybe they do. I don't know, but. <laughs> So I'm, I guess I'm trying to like give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of like what they were thinking. But I, I guess I get your point in terms of like hidden symbolism that rubs people differently than than intended. Do I make any sense there? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. What one thing I think this is this is like more of a nerdy point uh, when you were like, oh, do can women can women picture themselves as James Bond and. Uh, I think I one thing I was thinking about when I was uh, looking at the commercial is the fact that actually women are very socialized to receive content that is designed for men and put themselves in it. So when I watch when I watch it, I don't imagine myself as James Bond at all, but I'm very used to being given material, whether it's written material, whether it's a 19th century novel where women are always expected to be able to occupy the point of view of men because the point of view of men is is seen as universal whereas men find it difficult to do to do the the work in reverse which is you know men wouldn't be likely to read what they what has, was called a chiclet right you wouldn't see it would be unusual to see a man reading a romance novel that has a, a female lead or or to even read a 19th century novel that has a female lead like Jane Eyre, whereas women are very used to being socialized to identify with the male position as universal. So when I give them the benefit of the doubt, that's actually where I go, is that it never occurred to them to see to make something that was particular to women because that would be seen as niche, whereas making something that's particular to men is seen as universal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. yeah. The other, yeah. The other thing that I would add um, to that is we, we started talking about this commercial in the context of like, what is the role of the imagination? And I think like, what is, if I'm going to think about what is the potential of VR and why I work in this industry, it's because I actually want to change the culture that I live in and I want to create a more um, inclusive and a nonviolent culture. And so when I see this commercial and when I see that the, it's these white straight beauty standards it's just a ton of like really, really attractive people. Um, there's, there's only dominance. There's no interrelationships. Um, and when I see this is how the, the imagination is only replicating what, um, 
what could be seen in like a Hollywood film. Um, I'm just incredibly disappointed. And I think that if, if, if we want the VR industry to change and we want the culture that we live in to change, to become less violent, then I think, you know, we need to start saying like, Hey, like, could we imagine, you know, constructing this vision of white men who are not, you know, completely one dimensional, only interested in like money and sex and power and like showing men who actually have like some level of like humanity and who are interested in like love and relationships. And that's what's missing from that commercial. Yeah, I guess it's interesting. I'm trying to think of like how, you know, how you could market a headset with with those qualities. And I guess it's the easier thing is to go for the action adventure, right? Because like, and that's also what developers do a lot with games. It's like, oh, just put a gun in the hand and <laughs> and you can shoot. It's the simplest VR mechanic. Um, but yeah, the, to kind of have more depth, it's, it's yeah, I'm thinking it's it's not easy. I haven't worked on on like trailers and marketing material before. Um, so yeah, and why? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, why do you think shooting was the ground? Why was that the simplest mechanic? Why was that the first place people went? So well, I'm sure you can you know put some of that onto like the who 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 are these developers like in terms of like gender and like how much of like how many of them are are male and sure like you'll you'll probably find a lot that's pretty similar to like the overall tech industry um but it it is in terms of like the things that you let okay let's let's look at it from a controller perspective like you have buttons and the one if the first thing the first mechanic you learn as like a developer is to like pick up an object and to throw it so then you can think of like basketball games and like kind of sport games from that but typically the second me mechanic that you like I mean, I, I guess that I learned was like how to um, pick up an object and then press the trigger to fire a projectile, you know, whether it's like confetti or whether it's balloons, like, you know, Valve, Valve's done a pretty good job, like not just making gun games, but like thinking about what you can do with these controllers. So I guess it does take like, you know, over the last couple of years, this is one of the things we talk about is like, what interesting interactions can you do in VR that you can't in real life? And one of the easier things you can go on and the, one of the easier games you can make, although you've seen a lot of people try it and be unsuccessful at it is, um, is some sort of a, an action adventure game. And that, and that sells a lot, you know, those, uh, the, a lot of gamers are buying these headsets. So they're looking for action adventure games, I think for the most part, uh, although there's a big room for games that are not that hence Beat Saber, you know, being the most highest sold game on VR. Um, but it's the easier kind of option to go for is uh, at least come kind of from where I see things. Yeah. And I think that's just another place where it's really interesting again, not necessarily remotely intentional, that uh, sports and military are both tend to be gendered coded male under patriarchy. And so we have a, we have a technology that's, that's implicitly reinforcing gender codes in the dominant culture. I'm not saying that that was remotely intentional, but it's interesting to think that perhaps one of the reasons it's challenging to think differently is because these gender coding are received as inevitable. Yeah, and I guess you just don't have that many examples of the alternative, right? So kind of, it's easier to go along what exists. Uh, Jessica and Rebecca, you've done uh, quite a bit of writing on Medium, actually. You have three articles about breaking down these three different principles, or these nine principles, into three each. 
and looking into how they apply to VR and more specifically kind of like having a strong idea of culture and strong culture itself in in your VR community leads to like major benefits in terms of like having uh you know higher usage amongst your users and like attracting new people and to even like keep them you know that retention of users which is really hard to do in social situations because you know the people that are listening to this are a lot of them are developers i typically like to um I like to bring people on because they, everyone has their own, you know, domain expertise and, and I like to extract interesting things, learnings that you've had, um, so that people that are working in in this industry can learn from that. So I, I guess this also ties in with the, uh, with the commercial in terms of like the first, the first thing that you put forward was the idea of a hero in a, in a community. And, and it's a celebrated figure and it's this basically the ideals and also like specific real people that are celebrated. And, and I guess the idea is that the other members of the community are supposed to, um, are supposed to look up to that ideal and different cultures have different, uh, heroes of that. Um, have you, I mean, I don't know how much time you, you spend, you know, in, within different social VR communities, but like, do you have any thoughts about, um, who are the heroes that exist today? You know, I guess beyond just the general VR community, but like more specifically, like within cultures, within VR apps, like, uh, how, how this, how this gets applied. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I could definitely name heroes, um, who exist. And then I think there's, there's heroes where that are celebrated by the community. Um, and then there's also heroes that are chosen, you know, maybe by the actual platform. So, um, yeah. So just to like introduce what this series is on medium, um, I gave a talk at games for change in June, 2019, and I think it's going to be posted soon. So it might be posted by the time this comes out. But it is on um, techniques to transform online cultures. So the reason that I wrote this talk is because I had multiple conversations with people who were frustrated with the safety issues and they wanted to know what could be changed um, and about these online platforms and how they could change the social norms. Um, there's a lot of things that have been inherited from the gaming industry. And so how do you, how do you create a reset? And so some ideas that I've heard are around, you know, creating AI moderators or having live moderators out around all the time. And I think that that's, that's inefficient compared to using these tools of anthropology and So essentially, like whenever an anthropologist or sociologist is going to visit a new group of people anywhere in the world, um, they will look at these nine elements of culture in order to understand exactly um, like who is there, like who is part of this culture, what is important to them, what are their values and what are the taboos? And it's a way to very quickly understand what is the existing culture. And then if any of those items that are, that are cataloged changed, then it will change the culture as well. And so one thing that I talk about a lot is the use of language. And so, for example, in, in the culture of VR, some people call harassment harassment, and then other people call harassment griefing. And harassment is illegal in certain contexts. Griefing just sounds like it's like, who knows what that is? <laughs> like, that's not even a real word. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess you can categorize it as fucking around, right? Like, as, I mean, 
I, I don't know the, the, the friendships that you have and, and the, you know, the things that you do together, but at least, you know, some, some friends that I'm very comfortable with, like we, we have, we have this license that we can be intimate together and like be close together in real, in real life and like to, you know, push each other, push, push each other into things. And I guess mm-hmm. I think the, the, the common problem that happens is like when either that, that sort of behavior that gets applied to people that are not expecting it and do not want it and, you know, have not signed up for that and, or like, are just in a room where things are happening and they're like, this is not what I'm here for. It's like weird. It's, you're like in a weirdly intimate situation. Um, and, and I, I do want to actually recommend for people to, to listen to your podcast with, with Kent by actually, where you really kind of go in depth into each point. Um, and I, and I guess I have certain follow up questions from that. And in, in terms of one, one of them was about like griefing and harassment. Um, do you think there is like role, like room to have some sort of like, you know, non sit down and look at it, each other behave, like some sort of behavior where you are kind of like messing around a little bit more than <laughs> I'm not saying yeah. harassing, right? Like, cause I don't want to, there, there, there should be some room for play and then clear hard edges when someone, let's say it's non-consensual play when someone doesn't want to play and someone does. Yeah. Right. Am, am I, yeah. Okay. I think that's, that. I mean, I think as long as there's consent in place, mm. I think that's fine. Um, I think that, yeah, like, I think that this is, I think that, it's one thing to be like, you know, here are the parameters. This is who I, who I, I'm going to give a lot of grief to. This is when we do it. This is where we do it. And then I think it's another thing to say, these are open platforms. I can do whatever I want, wherever I want right. to whoever I want. And so I think those are, I, I perceive those as totally different things. It sounds also like I, I have to mention this interesting interview that um i don't know if you listen to the recode decode podcast but it's uh something that kira swisher hosts um and she was having a conversation with the reddit ceo about kind of what we're talking about here culture and online culture in community and it's funny how different how how reddit does things differently in terms of content moderation versus someone like facebook or twitter where they have to like continually hire hundred, you know, tens of thousands of people, um, contractors to sit there and like go through like flag posts and just like, you know, you're like, and, and they're getting like traumatized because they're seeing really like messed up things. Um, and they're, you know, Facebook is still getting like completely railed on for it. Um, but Reddit, basically their approach was that instead of spending money and people and technology on doing this from the start, they really had an idea of, keeping like having the community set their own each you know each each subreddit each subculture sets their own rules and has their own heroes and their own moderators that are unpaid from their own community that are like self-moderating they're like we we believe in humans in being able to sorry if there's thunders happening behind me it sounds like a (laughs) a hell storm coming but um it's it's they're like we 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 believe that humans can actually like set the rules for themselves. It's not that we should have no rules and people figure it out, but it's that we should give the the tools to each community and like 
communities themselves are really good at like uh, at defining what is okay and what is not and at what point um, versus using technology. So when I read that in your post in terms of like, um, yeah, let's not spend money on like AI and just people being in VR rooms and like moderate, you know, being a, a chaperone or, you know, creating new AI, whoa, whatever that means to, to do moderation. Um, it's actually, no, just actually make better, make a better culture from the start. And that will have like paid dividends for years to come. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. I think your points and like kind of your research that, that has done like what, why it interested me is because you kind of were trying to like formulate that, like trying to extract, like what are the better principles of a culture to implement into your experience, into your app and to have that be a proactive thing instead of then having like a major issue that blows up online and that you have to like write an apology post for and, you know, tell, okay, you know, we're not going to have harass, we're going to have to ban these, these sort of behaviors. Like nobody wants that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this whole idea of like having small communities that are where there's leadership involved and then that that leadership will those moderators will set the tone and then uh, train other people who come in what the tone is. And then with everyone in your community is enforcing your norms for you. That is the goal. The reason that I wrote up these um this the series on how anthropologists and sociologists study cultures and where social norms come from is because I am um, I just hear from people like oh it's really hard to change culture we don't we're not sure how to change culture um, or where would we even start and I wanted to give people at least an initial playbook of things to consider and so going back to that discussion about like all right sports guns like just consider like what is the symbolism associated with each of those you know what are the behaviors you can expect and what are the stories that are going to come out of that and so i think that people um people always have a choice developers and designers always have a choice in what they're going to build. And I'm trying to make these things that might appear invisible to us on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, such as like paying attention to the language that all of your coworkers use uh, and starting to like take a more critical eye to these things that may just be taken for granted about what's called griefing or what's called harassment. Like I'm trying to empower people with, uh, with, with new ways of looking at the culture that we're already living in. Because the reason like these nine, these like elements of culture, like these, these aspects of stories of who are the heroes, what are the symbols, what are the rituals, what are the symbolic acts? Like this is something that exists in our own families. It exists. Like if you go to church, it exists like to, at any community center, and of course it exists in company and company culture and it exists in VR. And so there's no getting away from it. And so if you just get really good at noticing it in any one of those contexts, it'll start to become very obvious in every other context. Right. I, do you do you at all look at kind of current existing social media networks as almost like a, a, a future version of what social VR um, you know, networks would be like, but, um, just, you know, without the actual face to face interactions and are there things from there that, you know, people can learn from in terms of moderation and, and, or, or like the problems first that we will reach, right? Right now, if nobody has VR or like very few people have VR, but when 
if if it's something that's cheap enough and widespread enough that you have everyone from you know your uncle to their you know your twelve year old nephew to like government organizations on it to like think of Twitter right like it has everyone on it um, and the sort of issues that arise from scale um, how like are, are there things that you 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 would like you can tie in to you know small small VR social networks that exist today that should learn from uh, so that, you know, they don't cause the same mistakes? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, um, yeah, I think that, I think that I'm like, it's, it's a little bit of a struggle to identify like, Mm. you know, who's really crushing it in the social media, um, (laughs) <laughs> doesn't feel like, <laughs> like it is mod- <laughs> moderation space. Um, I mean, like even, yeah, I mean, you even talked about Reddit before and there was, there was just a podcast on, on the media where, and I think it was also written up in Charlie Warzel's blog, uh, another tech reporter where there was a ton of conflict inside of like a Christian Reddit group. And so they create, they did us, they did like, they facilitated some restorative justice or restorative practice conversations mm. with some of the high conflict uh, groups inside of the Christian Reddit. And um, I think they, they were successful in one case, but not successful in the other two cases that mm. they attempted. That's really cool, actually. I, I don't think many online communities have that like, or like give that leeway of being like okay let's let's find a way of like forgiving this person or like having them at least you know like talk about what they did or like that sort of restorative justice is really something that is i mean we talk people talk about it online a lot that it's like as soon as uh like people people are just cast away like that's you're done and there is no like in in a real life community there should there are typically ways of coming back right yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's, I mean, I think I would recommend that reporting to people. Um, I know there's other people like Darius Kazemi, who was a Mozilla fellow who, who essentially created this entirely new platform called build your own social, where you can build like your own social network, um, independent of any other major platform to hang out with your friends. And I think it's related. It's like using, um, it's like setting up a Mastodon server and there's more to it, but if you just type in, you know, Darius Kazemi, uh, K-A-Z-E-M-I and build your own social, you will be able to find that. Um, and then Rebecca, I know you've been following like some, some of the tech reporting, like that New Yorker article, if there's anything that you would want to add around, like how broader tech could influence, could tell us something about where VR is headed. Yeah. And I just wanted to add in also, like, I think, a whole other layer that can be added to the work that Jessica was explaining is not only looking sort of anthropology at like this, the symbolic system and the rules that cultures make for themselves. I think what's happening, you know, there's a really interesting article in the New Yorker, this week's New Yorker about uh, tech more generally taking, taking on this question of ethics and like what kind of culture is being created in the dominant culture with social media and what would it mean to have an ethical conversation? And I think ethics brings us closer to the, to the realm of emotion. So imagination is this nice bridge point between the level of the idea and the level of feeling. And I think part of what we're talking about in these communities, there's, you know, nobody wants to be policed, right? You don't want to just be have all of your desires for play and connection and vulnerability made flat flattened by rules or moderators or people telling you that you're constantly doing something wrong. 
And at the same time, when you have these small subcultural communities, small communities tend to attract other people who are already like people in that community. And what's happening, I think there's a larger conversation that's that's happening sort of awkwardly in the dominant culture and that's also happening in tech, which is how do we how do we keep communities safe for the people who are already a part of them? But how do we also allow communities to open up to people who are different, who are curious, who are interested in coming into spaces where they don't necessarily know the norms? And that usually requires empathy from the people who are already part of the community. And so one one thing that I think would be really interesting to to use VR for is to help people move from action into feeling and ask why it is that folks struggle with empathizing with people who are different from them and or empathizing with people who have less power than they do. And what's tricky about that? What kinds of emotions come up for people when they think about being vulnerable or think about being implicated in somebody else's uh, power or privilege? And so for me, that's a conversation that I feel like is just starting more broadly in tech. And I, I really want to encourage people to recognize that it's possible to move into empathy and vulnerability without it being overwhelming or frightening or shaming. Mm. Do, you, do you think there's like good room for that in, in VR to kind of have these intimate, like be able to interact with each other more intimately? Absolutely. Actually, Jessica was showing me, um, uh, a little demo. Oh, where, where thoughts go. It, yeah. I, I was just with the, with the bubbles, the one that you showed me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, Lucas Risotto's, I don't know how to say his last name. Do yeah, you yeah. notice how to say his name last, last name, Ross? Yeah, Risotto. Like, I think like the, like <laughs> okay. the food, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, not to shout our, ourselves up, but we do have an episode with him talking about the experience, uh, where oh, thoughts go. Awesome. Uh, maybe like 20 okay. episodes back. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I did talk to Lucas about his, his like original goals in creating that experience. And I'll go back and listen to this, your podcast with him, Oz, but he did tell me like one of his goals was to recreate, like, like having a group support mm. like system there. So, um, so I did ask Rebecca to do a demo of where thoughts go. So she was bringing that up as an example of, um, of, you know, what would, what would be an example where people could be vulnerable in VR? Right. Yeah. I guess I can imagine in a future setting where instead of a Skype conversation, like there, there are therapists the way you do have just Skype conversations. Like that's, that's a business now that's growing. I mean, I think VR or like, yeah, more an embodied chat would be Actually, it doesn't even need to be a therapist. I mean, even that's like if you're having an intimate conversation with a friend talking about something very personal, like it might make more sense to do it. You know, like you wouldn't, you, you, um, don't have, you don't text someone like something crazy important and deep. Instead, you call them and, you know, the next, the next step from that, I think, um, would be VR, but, uh, yeah, we're not there. Well, it also doesn't have to be always when I'm talking about, empathy and vulnerability it doesn't it doesn't also always have to be at the level of content like that um lucas's vr community has people literally saying very vulnerable things out loud but empathy can also just be a private situation where you think about why why am i so comfortable in this space 
who am I and what's happening in this space that's making me comfortable? And then for me to actually imagine if I were someone who looked differently than I do, who is of a different gender than I am, who is of a different class position than I am, how do I imagine they would feel in this space? What would need to change in order for them to feel that they had as much room to be as much freedom as I feel in this space. That's what I mean in part when I'm talking about empathy is like actually imagining myself as a different person entering that community. And then what can I see that I wouldn't necessarily be attuned to seeing in communities where I'm really comfortable because I'm like, oh, this is second nature. Of course, I know how to of course, I know how to joke around. Of course, I know how to signal to people that I'm not harassing them, that I'm giving them a hard time, right? Like, of course, this is second nature to me because this is my space. So, but if I imagine myself as a different kind of a person entering that space, what would I need to feel welcome? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. I, I, a question really comes to mind in terms of community and maybe like the the community obviously is made of like who is in it and, and how many people are in it. Are there like distinct... I don't know if, at, at all if you've like come across this in your research, but like, are there like distinct sizings of communities where like, if it's under 10 people, it's like <clears throat> this sort of feeling. If it grows to a hundred, it turns into this, or I guess and also what I'm trying to get at is like, is there a certain tipping point where it's like a little bit too larger than like, does it lose an intimacy at a, at a certain point and what that is because like I, i'm sure that's like a really it's an important question if you want to set the the way your culture works in a in a community and like does that make sense yeah well so there's thoughts? the dunbar number a lot of people are familiar with the dunbar number of like mm -hmm. 150 is about how many how many people um you can track like you can track in a in your community um but I think in terms of scale, I think there are other ways to approach that. 150 is not that many. <laughs> um, and so it like, especially when, you know, you're, you're talking to people on Twitter. Um, and so I think that there are ways to scale this and to scale like these ideas of like what you want your social norms to be. And I think that is by being really clear on what your values are. So for example, if you're running a platform, like let's say you're running a social VR platform, you can say really clearly, like, this is what our values are. Uh, and this is what we, the, and we want to empower you to enforce what our social norms are. And then we're going to have like a weekly meeting and we're going to celebrate the people who we saw, you know, doing the, doing the symbolic acts that we found really, really important. Hmm. So did you, did you teach a class for other people in our platform about, um, about how you make digital art? Like we're going to recognize you because we are all artists here and you create an identity around that. So I think that these things can scale and I think it takes work. Right. It'll, I think it's less work than creating the AI moderators. <laughs> Um, but it is, it is still work to say, to come out really strongly and say, this is what our values are. Right. This is what we stand for. This is who our heroes are. And this is how we're going to celebrate them. Mm. And, and you're, you're advocating for this to be done proactively rather than something that is, you know, right. Well, it'll happen. It'll mm -hmm. happen if you ignore it. Um, and, it, and, and my, um, my belief is that the way it will happen is that we will just import whatever the existing social norms are that are in dominant culture. And so 
uh, I think we're already seeing that in that Hollywood Hollywood type commercial where there's um, where there's a white man who gets everything that he desires, who um, dominates other men. He's not in relationship to anyone. He's not connected to anyone. And then he um, he he leaves in a helicopter. And so I think the thing is, is like those are the those are the norms that are going to be ported in unless people are more thoughtful in how they and how they want and what are the behaviors that they expect from other people there and what are the symbols that they're going to allow. Mm. Yeah, I th- I'm I think we can we can end on this and in terms of the idea that we do now have a culture, at least in the in the West and in the US, where like these the the norms the default of like who should be cast for things is really being questioned and being like and and also you know on my end like realizing actually huh i guess i'd never really noticed that like the casting for most like shows and tv shows it's like they all fall pretty similarly and even for like I guess the, the the parts that would like piss me off would be if like the the place would be set in like if it was in, like supposed to be an Armenian character or like a Lebanese character and it's like never someone that's from there it's like an Indian person cast as like a brown person right like or like any other brown person cast and it's like oh it's fine let's just go with it and they speak with an accent like th- things like that would stick out to me but nowadays I look at it more of like oh I guess it is always been the same protagonists and like that that i think has really awakened in a lot of people even you know if even if they agree with it or not in terms of like how important it is for for um for especially in media to to have inclusivity um be a big factor of it like i think it's on everyone's mind and i think if if that's if this is something that you know if you care about it, it's I, I think it's there's a lot happening um and i and I guess your argument is that this should be reflected in VR's marketing material as well. Right. Well, it, yeah, and I think it's happening very slowly. So mm. there's one element which is like, all right, who's cast? And then the thing is, is like, who, like, like for example, are they still people who they might be like from the right, you know, the right country or like of the right profile, but like, are they conforming to what the white beauty standards are? Sure. Um, and then are they like, are, like, what are the other things that are still in place that are reinforcing the dominant culture? So I think that all of these layers build on each other. And so I think that the reason I'm doing this entire series on stories, on language and jokes, on heroes, on mascots, archetypes, the rituals, symbolic acts and more is because I want to convince people that you can't just change one thing and get the output put that you're looking for. You really have to like look at things holistically uh, in in building a culture because changing one thing isn't going to be strong enough to change the output. Right. You have to change all these kind of or like most of the grand majority of these variables that you're putting forward. Right. And it'll also make your life easier if you decide to change all of them rather than just one of them. Right. Well, Jessica, Rebecca, this has been awesome. How can people, well, how can people actually find your work uh, more about kind of the, these nine principles that we've been talking and also how can people reach you if they want to ask you questions? Sure. So I, um, they can find the blogs on the series on Medium. Um, it's called Want Social Norms, Nine Steps to Building a Strong Culture. Um, three parts are out. There's two more parts that are coming soon. 
excuse me. And then um, I'm also on Twitter and you can find me at the extended mind. And Rebecca. And my website is Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A dash Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N dot com. And I, um, I write blog posts there and sometimes I also blog on Medium. Awesome. And you can find us on Twitter at ResearchVRCast. And you can find me at Azaducks. Um, anyway, thank you, Jessica and Rebecca, for being here. Yeah, our Thanks pleasure. so much for having us. Yeah, it's been great. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>